welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfon. What up, Cash? What's up is that we've got the second round, the conference semifinals, in full gear now. We've officially got a new MVP, and we've got a player that we're going to talk about for a few minutes that is very much not an MVP. Under any circumstances, right. is he an uh, MVP? No. I mean, he, he's one, like, I'd say for a long time, he was one of our pound the rock MVPs just because we both loved. I, oh, I yeah. still is. Yeah. But yeah, n- never going to sniff an actual MVP. But so why don't we do this? We're going to, we can touch on Embiid and his MVP triumph finally, uh, and then segue into Celt Sixers. And then that can kind of segue us into talking about all four second round series. But so let's just get the Dylan Brooks thing out of the way because it doesn't really fit with any of the other stuff we're talking about today. And it would be just weird to transition to it from it unless we're like, while we're talking Lakers or something. But so let's get it out of the way now. Shams reported a couple days ago that the Grizzlies had informed Dylan Brooks, I guess at his exit uh, meeting with the team after they were eliminated, that they are not going to bring him back under any circumstances. Very specific and interesting and unique language in this report that I do not ever remember reading or seeing about another pending free agent. This started an entire thing about people saying, oh, like, are the Grizzlies screwing him a bit here? And why would they put this out there? Like, even if they're done with him, this is so unprofessional because it's going to, like, dampen his mark and all that. You can say you don't know if it came from, like, within the Grizzlies organization. There's zero chance that this came from Dylan Brooks's camp. Like, look at the language in that piece. It is There's not a single praiseworthy thing said about Dylan Brooks in that piece. If this is an agent leak, you're hearing things about he's, you know, an all-NBA caliber defender, like a, a vital part of this team for the last four years or whatever. You're not hearing things like he got himself ejected for punching LeBron right. James in the groin. And, man, the weirdest thing to me, and I'm really curious if this was just like Shams editorializing or if whoever leaked this to him actually included this. But did you see this, the the point about how he blew a help assignment on the LeBron layup in game four? Yeah, that's, and and so that's what I was gonna say. I don't think Brooks and his people leaked this. I don't think his eight, but what I'm saying is people are very quick to assume like a Grizzlies front office members, like someone in those meetings, like it could also be someone else around the Grizzly could be another player it could be anyone that found out about this maybe Brooks told them maybe someone in the Grizzlies front office told that person and then that person leaked to Shams I just don't agree with the notion that someone from the Grizzlies front office went to Shams like here's exactly what we told Dylan I because there's there's reasons it doesn't make sense for them either well the reasons are that it looks bad like the optics of it are bad it doesn't reflect well on them but i don't know that somebody in the grizzlies front office would necessarily be cognizant of how poorly it would come off rather than thinking they just want to distance themselves from him because of how poorly their season ended and how big a part he played in how poorly their season ended so i think that's like to me it is overwhelmingly likely that this came from somebody in the grizzlies front office like i can't say that with 100% certainty, but just based on the way that it was reported, the language in the piece, I would say that's a an educated guess to say that that's what happened. I'm not saying it came from like Zach Kleiman directly, right. but you know somebody in his orbit, uh, I think, probably fed this information to Shams. And it's, it's hard to know, again, how much of what was said in that piece was editorialized and how much came directly from the source. 
maybe Shams himself has a vendetta against Dylan Brooks and wanted to make it look as bad as possible, you know, but uh, I, you know, one way or another, it's just odd for a story like this to get out there at all. Like we don't see that very often, especially for a player who like, yeah, we, we talked all about how much he struggled in that playoff series. I, you know, I, I don't really think too much about like the, the trash talk or the antics or whatever. And, whether that might have been some kind of a distraction. I just don't really buy that. But in terms of the on-court stuff, it was obviously a rough conclusion for him. And I would be, you know, totally understanding of the Grizzlies saying, look, we don't, you know, we want out of the Dylan Brooks experience and we're not going to resign him. That's fine. That's what I would have expected anyway. But for it to be put out here publicly is just very, very strange. For, for a guy who has been, a really important part of their ascent over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. The one thing I would say is that at some point, I think it gets a little tiring and grating, even if you're on that guy's team, when the one doing all the trash talking is someone who, quite frankly, isn't good enough to always do something about it. And I'm not taking, like, we both love Dylan Brooks on the defensive side. We both think. The last few years, he should be in like a, an all-defensive team candidate. He On that side of the ball, he is definitely good enough to make a difference. But in the grand scheme of things in the NBA, Dylan Brooks is not the caliber of player that can consistently change the outcome of the game to the point where it's almost like he's talking too much for where his place in the game is. And I do think even if you're teammates with a guy, that can get grading. And in addition to all the other stuff, I just think it kind of you know compounds over time. And the teams may be thinking, all right, like based on everything that happened this year, like maybe our team needs to grow up and maybe part of that just can't include Dylan Brooks anymore. And then also just the part about, you know, how he apparently wants a bigger offensive role, which look like every player in the NBA that's not a star wants a bigger offensive role. There was a stuff about like, you know, he wanted a bigger offensive role, but they saw him more as a three and D guy. The one thing I'll say about this is, look, I we've had this conversation before about how like we can preach about self-awareness, but to even get to the level these guys are at, there has to be this like outsized sense of self-belief that we probably can't understand. But having said that, I would also say usually when a guy who's in a more limited offensive role thinks he can do more and wants to do more, if he actually can do more, there would at least be evidence that he was doing the smaller role well and efficiently on the offensive end. And in the case of Dylan Brooks, like, that's just not the case. Yeah, he might have one game here and there where he pops off or where the, the jumpers fall, but we're talking about a guy who, ha- for his career, has shot 46% from two-point range, 34% from three, okay, 80% from the free throw line, whatever. This season, 45% from two-point range and 33% from three. Again, not exactly on the highest of usages here. So I'm just well, struggling. I would say on like probably... Um... An overly high usage, if you ask but, a lot of people within the Grizzlies organization. 100%. And not, not high enough from Brooks's perspective. But that you, you get what I'm saying, where it's like, this isn't the case of a guy who you can be like, oh, I see something there. If he can maybe get more of an offensive role somewhere else. If anything, you're looking at Dylan Brooks' offensive performance and saying, dude, tamp it down a bit. Like, this is not you. This is not who you are. Yeah, I would just say maybe focus on nailing down the three aspect of the three and D equation before thinking about moving on to a different or bigger offensive role. Like if anything, like, and we've said 
I've always said like with Dylan Brooks, you kind of just have to take the good with the bad. But if anything, you want his role, his offensive role, his usage moving in the other direction, like scaling down instead of scaling up. And I think any team that's going to sign him this offseason, and I think he will have no shortage of suitors. He does not have to learn Chinese, buddy, unlike the the great Adam Silver meme that floats around with things that's happened. But any team that's realistically going to sign him, you know, I, I he'll to me he'll get like the full mid level, if not a little bit more, but probably something in the range of like the the non taxpayer MLE. Last year it was like three thirty three, something like that. Oh, okay. So with the cap going up, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, which is in line with his last deal. I think his last deal was three thirty five. But any team that's going to give him that is going to do so with the stated expectation and assumption that he is going to be doing less on offense not more so i'm curious to see how that goes and whether that is like a rude awakening for him and i don't know how solid the reporting was in that piece that suggested that that was the reason for the the breakup ultimately but you know one way or another there's going to be some kind of a reckoning for him if uh you know if he wants to get paid in a way that i think is commensurate with his value it's just a Mm -hmm. question of leaning into his strengths and away from his weaknesses yeah, agreed. All right, we don't have to spend too much more time on this. Last thing I'll just say is that, and I mentioned this on the last part too, look, I, and you know this, I love players trash talking, whatever, I love it. I'm never going to clown a guy for trash talking, but the only thing I'll say is that you have to be able to face the music when things go the other way for you, and that I didn't like about him towards the end of the season and in, in the playoff series where he just didn't talk to the media. We talked about it last episode too. He kind of blamed the media for his rep, all that. Trash talk away, try to get under guys' hands, do all those things you do, Say the things you say in the media about poking bears, like whatever, have your fun with it. But then you can't then shy away from it when things go south on you. Like you, if, if you're going to dish it, you got to be able to take it and face the music. One guy that also likes to dish it, but unlike Dylan Brooks, can consistently change the outcome of games because he is one of the best players on the planet. And for the 2022-2023 season was voted to be the most valuable of all of them. Joel Embiid, who made his return from injury in game two against the Boston Celtics. And of course, just because these are the way things go, the day he finds out he gets MVP and returns to the team that upset the Celtics without him in game one, they lose with him. You want to talk a little bit about Joel Embiid's MVP caliber season? I mean, you were the one out of the two of us that actually said you would have voted for him anyway. I, I had him second still to Jokic, but I also did say of the three years I would have voted for Jokic, this was the one where Embiid winning it like would not bother me at all. I think he's fully deserving in his own right. Yeah, I mean, I really don't think there's much to say that we didn't already say on our awards episode where I laid out the case. So I'll just say, you know, congratulations to Joel. He's been knocking on the door for a while. Two straight years of runner-up finishes before finally breaking through. And I think it's deserved for all the reasons that I stated in that episode and you know if Jokic had won I think that would have been totally deserved too like we ultimately came to a disagreement uh when we were doing our awards picks but it wasn't like a spirited argument or anything like that I think we both saw the argument uh and the case for either guy and I yeah I ultimately came away feeling like Embiid was deserving so kudos to him unbelievable season and unbelievable journey to get to where he got to after, you know, he started playing basketball super late, missed the first two years of his NBA career. Like it's, you know, to to even just like 
play enough of a season to be able to win this award is a, a huge accomplishment for him, given the physical ailments that he dealt with early in his career. And, yeah. you know, even the, in year three, after missing the first two, I think he played 30 something games. Yeah. 37, I think. And has obviously dealt with, you know, nicks and bruises and everything in between ever since then. But, uh, yeah, just a monster season, and I just hope that he can get back up to you know something close to that level in the playoffs. You know, while the Sixers still have life, because I don't—I wouldn't say he looked bad in Game Two, but like defensively, like honestly, he looked—he blocked five shots in the first half. Mm-hmm. You know, and and a lot of them were like pretty acrobatic help side blocks you know not just your standard like he's sitting in drop coverage and the guy's coming to him and he just sort of times them up and blocks them without really having to leave his feet like they were they were legit like come from out of nowhere and swat a guy at the rim kind of blocks he looked pretty agile and effective defensively offensively he was rusty and not not really his explosive self I didn't think so. I don't know. I mean, do do you think they were wrong? It's obviously easy to say this in hindsight because they got demolished. And, you know, so whatever would have happened if he'd sat out, it couldn't have been any worse than what actually happened with him playing. So it's easy to say this in hindsight. But do you think they were wrong to to kind of push for game two and play him rather than having already stolen home court advantage? You know, similar to what Miami did with Jimmy Butler, where you just sit him out in game two. Worst case scenario, you've got the split and you buy him an extra couple days of rest before you come home. I don't have a problem with the decision they ultimately made. Look, in the case of Butler and the Heat, I think they also ended up with like four days off, right? Between game two and three or three days off or something like that. Uh, Three off days in between game two and three, yeah. Yeah, and so I wonder with Jimmy if it was more like, look, we, we stole in home court maybe his ankle was again i mean i mean i don't know we don't we don't have the medical records here but like maybe his ankle was in a case in a situation more where it was a little more iffy for him to play game 2 and they thought look rather than risk anything we've got the extra off days we're going home let's sit him out with Embiid look i would imagine given how much they have riding on him and the fact that they had already stolen home court in the series they would not have played him if there was like any risk anything like that so clearly he was cleared to play he was ready to go from that perspective I can also imagine on the day that he won MVP, he was raring to go and wanted to be in the lineup. And if he was cleared to play and wanted to be in the lineup, you're not telling literally the MVP, hey, I know you can now play, but no, we're going to see. Like, it's the playoffs. If he can play, you want him to play. The way I see it too is re-watching the game this morning. I didn't watch it live yesterday. I noticed the same things you did where I thought defensively he looked really good and springy and like movement wise did not really look worse for wear. To me, that gives me hope that whatever was going on in the offensive end was a little more rust than any sort of like physical limitation stuff. And if that's the case, I think you can make the argument, hey, we've already stolen home court. We've got that win. Let's bring him back in game two. Best case scenario, we go up to nothing going home with him back in the lineup. Worst case scenario, it doesn't work out. He shakes off some of the rust. And then now when we bring him back, like game three at home is not his first game back when he still has that rust. So I think you can look at it that way too. He's shaking off the rust. He looks good defensively. He's already found out he's MVP. They'll have the probably the little pregame ceremony at home before game three. I would expect Joel Embiid to be very good in game three and to come out 
absolutely energized and ready to go in ways that perhaps he wouldn't have been able to if that was going to be his first game back. Yeah, and I think ultimately the fact that they did get blown out is kind of a blessing in disguise in that they didn't have to push and be, exactly. you know, like they didn't really have to play him at all in the fourth quarter. And so it winds up being m- more of a restful game for him, I guess, than it might have been if it was like a down to the wire kind of loss. So we'll see how, how it goes in game three and whether, you know, the, the playing took something out of him that, you know, he could have been fresher if he'd sat out or whether, like you said, shaking off some of the rust initially helps him get into the kind of rhythm they need him to be in coming back home. But I don't know if you saw Joe Mazzula at the end of his press conference the other night ask, what, nobody nobody wants to talk about the adjustments we made from game one to two, and then you stormed off, so uh, I didn't. should we talk about some of those adjustments? I didn't see that, but I do appreciate that Paisan wit coming from <laughs> so that that passive-aggressive Italian nonna jab he threw at the media there. Um, but I also know that in our conversations last night, you, when I asked you to quickly catch me up on Celtic Sixers before I do a rewatch of it later, I think one of the first things you mentioned was that the Celtics made some really great defensive adjustments. So why don't you tell me and our listeners what you think those adjustments are that the media did not give Joe Mazzula enough credit for? (laughs) So first and foremost, I think just realizing that PJ Tucker is straight up not going to shoot the ball (laughs) and that Philly barely even looks in his direction as a result of that, even when he's wide open. So recognizing that and just taking their gap help to another level, like helping way off a Tucker in a strong side corner, weak side corner, dunker spot, whatever. And I I think that's really crucial because Tucker is extremely important to the Sixers defense. And if the Celtics can make him unplayable offensively, that's a huge blow. And I didn't think they did nearly enough to make him a liability in game one. And like the hardened game winning three is just a perfect example of that where Horford's guarding Tucker and Harden has been going at Horford in pick and roll all game. He torched him in drop coverage. So what the Sixers do on the final possession is like they give the switch. But like PJ Tucker literally at that point had not attempted a single field goal in the game. So I don't understand why you wouldn't just like, I don't know, like put two on the ball, right? Fight the switch. Don't give it. And if Harden wants to give the ball up to P.J. Tucker, who hasn't taken a shot all game, then you live with that rather than giving the switch and allowing Harden essentially to to get off that game-winning three over Horford when he'd been cooking him all game. So they cleaned that up in game two. They made a point, I think, of sort of exposing Tucker at the offensive end. And I thought that was a big story of game two. Like the Sixers just couldn't really get comfortable in their offense. They couldn't find space in the middle of the floor, running the Harden and Bede pick and roll got tougher just because a third guy was pulling over early to the nail to stymie Embiid's short roll. And then there's like a downstream effect of that too, where for long stretches of the game, Horford is guarding Tucker. And that not only allows him to be this off-ball rover, but it also... I think makes it a little bit more difficult for the Sixers to like exploit him in pick and roll the way they did in game one, because again, Tucker just isn't really much of a threat on the roll. Right. And what I thought was really interesting is that on a lot of those possessions where Horford was guarding Tucker, the primary on, on Embiid was Marcus smart. 
happen for the Celtics point guard. And I like a lot of times when you see a kind of um, gimmicky matchup like that, the idea is to be able to switch pick and rolls, right? But honestly, they they did do that a, a few times where like Derek White would be guarding Harden. They'd switch it and then Horford would be peeled over like way off of Tucker and would immediately kick White out of the Embiid matchup on the backside. They did that a couple times. But like just as often, they actively fought the switch because they wanted to keep smart on Embiid. And so I thought that was like a very bold and, and fascinating gambit. Smart's super strong. Like he, you know, can kind of, he can body bigger guys in the post. And then obviously you have Horford who's able to come over with the help. And it felt to me almost like they wanted to goad Embiid into more post-ups. Because I think the Sixers offense, like part of what's made them so successful this year is like leaning away from that. Yeah. Making Embiid more of a role man or if he's isolating, he's doing it more like on face-ups from the nail area rather than with his back to the basket in like the mid post. And they kind of got the Sixers out of their offense, I thought, by like by like goading Embiid into posting up more than he's done for most of this season. And I thought that was interesting. Um, and then part of that too is like Grant Williams, they finally dusted him off after he was, I think, kind of inexplicably out of their rotation for a while. He played 28 minutes after only playing four in game one. He spent a lot of time guarding Embiid, which is you know not a huge surprise because he did it a ton during the regular season. Um, but then he also chipped in 12 points, four assists, a steal, shot four for eight from deep. He was a plus 22 in those 28 minutes. So part of that is just like the Celtics were way more willing to play two big lineups in this game. They barely did that at all in game one. And that makes sense with Embiid coming back, obviously. But like whether it was... Rob Williams and Al Horford playing together, Horford and Grant Williams playing together, Rob and Grant Williams playing together. Like they they spent most of game two playing two big lineups, which they had kind of not done at all in game one. So those are like some of the adjustments defensively that I thought made a big difference. And, you know, offensively, a lot of it was just like they hit their threes. Yeah. But and the Sixers didn't. James Harden went from having one of the greatest playoff games of his already legendary career to going two of 14. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, it, you know, it was really just like the Celtics were driving and kicking, driving and kicking, driving and kicking. And I thought the Sixers kind of overhelped on a lot of those drives and, and opened up a lot of those kicks unnecessarily. Uh, but th- I, yeah, the Celtics offense just was in a good rhythm on the whole. They were shooting the lights out. They hit 23s. Um, and that's all with Tatum scoring seven points in the game. And I think he had five of those points in the first four minutes of the game. So from that point on, he scored two points. And it didn't even matter because, you know, between Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart had a great offensive game. Brogdon was absolutely cooking from deep. Like I mentioned, Grant Williams hit those four threes. Um, ultimately, the Celtics outscored the Sixers 60-18 to 18 from behind the arc and outscored them in the paint. So that's a small indication there of how dominant a performance yeah. this was. That's how you win a game by 34 in yeah. the playoffs. Now, um, but yeah, you mentioned Harden coming crashing back down to earth. But did you, I mean, we, I guess we should spare a few words on his game one. Because even with this blowout game two loss, like that, that game one win looms so large 
in terms of like you know the way that the series could play out going it's a forward. best of five and the se- the Sixers have home court advantage in a, in a best of five in the series that we are both in agreement I think every basketball watching fan outside of New York and Miami are in agreement should be the unofficial East final so the Sixers have to like their chances overall in the series and that's in large part because of James Harden's game one heroics. And that should not be lost in his game two fart noise game. It was incredible to watch. And it was, look, a lot of it still was the three Just was hitting falling. Shots. Like, yeah. yes, that, that's the thing. Like, you know, people talking about it being like the Harden of old and a classic Harden performance. It still quite wasn't because it still wasn't so much about him slicing and dicing a defense by beating his man off the dribble and then like having a defense in rotation and then finding guys from the middle of the court like it was still predicated on the jumper falling and as we've talked about ad nauseum over the last couple of seasons now in the last couple of postseasons at this stage of his career that is much more of what James Harden is is like a guy who can still summon those type of performances but in a different way than he used to because now it is much more dependent on just whether that jumper is falling or not. And in game one, my God, was it falling. And in game two, as mentioned, he shot two of 14 from the field. So again, that's not to take anything away from him. Like those shots went in and he did carry that team to victory in game one. Max, he was also good. I don't want to take anything away from that performance. And as I said, it's now put them in a position where they have technically home court advantage in a best of five with the MVP back in the lineup. But the flip side of that is... It's not the kind of performance that you can really, not saying he's not capable of doing it again, but it's not the kind of performance where you watch and say, oh, like that, like that's something that the Sixers can count on happening again. Like it was very, I don't want to say luck-based, but. Well, it's, okay. I, I To your point, I think that people saying this was like Houston James Harden completely missed the point. Mm-hmm. Like what that really was, was like the, optimized version of Sixers James Harden where I think we really saw the benefits of him working that pull-up mid-range back into his repertoire because of the way that the Celtics were playing him and him just sort of being able to get to his spots pretty comfortably and the fact that he's now very willing to take that shot because what are the Celtics doing right like they're walling off the rim do you want to know how many shots the Sixers attempted at the rim in that game I do nine and that includes and that includes shots on which they got fouled. Yikes. Nine. So like the, nine total frequent... shooting possessions at the rim. Correct. That's awful. And uh, great from the Celtics defense. Yeah. Uh, 9.7% rim frequency in the game, according to cleaning the glass. Yikes. So with the Celtics playing that style of defense and Harden not being, you know, this explosive off the bounce threat the way that he used to be, in spite of that, you know, killer crossover that got Jalen Brown lurching the wrong way when he did get to the rim one of the two times in the game that Harden scored at the rim he has to have a counter and he found that counter he went eight for 14 from mid-range in the game like that's huge that's not hard that's not Houston Harden you know that is the the best version of Sixers Harden and I think we saw because it is still you know jump shot dependent for him at this stage of his career it's going to be more volatile and like I don't think, you know, you would have necessarily expected him to go directly from having literally his best playoff game ever, scoring 45 points and carrying that team to a game one win, to going two for 14 in the very next game. 
but that's the volatility that you can see when when your game becomes jump shot dependent. So, uh, you know, they they got to hope that they can bottle some of that magic from game one and get a little bit more of it sprinkled throughout this series. But, uh, you know, he's also hopefully going to have Embiid there to do some of the heavy lifting moving forward. So he won't need to do what he did in game one. But regardless, just a, a huge performance and securing a huge win that completely changes the complexion of the series. And ultimately, if the Sixers are able to pull this off, that game one performance is going to be a massive, massive reason why. Yeah, real quick before we jump over to Lakers, Warriors, hot off the press, breaking news as we speak. Marcus Smart won the Hustle Award. So there you go. Marcus Smart, the point guard who did guard Joel Embiid at times in game two, the last year's defensive player of the year wins the Hustle Award. All right, can we move over to Lakers, Warriors? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so I wrote about this yesterday. I was going to say a few minutes ago, one of the, the perfect segue would have been when you mentioned that the Celtics outscored the Sixers from behind the arc. I think you said... 60 six, to 18. 60 to 18. And that was part of them winning by 34. But they also outscored the Sixers in the paint. So the Warriors outscored the Lakers 63 to 18 from behind the arc in game one. They outscored them by 45 points from behind the arc. Unlike the Celtics in game two of their series, however... The Warriors still lost. And that is because if you compare their shot charts side by side, you really get the perfect image, literally, of how these teams' styles contrast each other. And while the Warriors outscored the Lakers by 45 from behind the arc, the Lakers shot 55% inside the arc. The Warriors barely got anything inside the arc. And the Lakers outscored them by 20 from the free throw line because the Lakers got to the line 21 more times than them. It was 27 to six from in terms of free throw attempts or 29 to eight now, I can't remember. But that actually tracks with the styles of these teams. Now you can say, look, they're not gonna out, they're not gonna get 20 plus more free throws every game. Okay, fair. But they should end up with many more free throws every game because one, the Lakers offense just functions in a way that will draw more fouls. Like straight up, they're more bruising. They're more of an interior team. Jump shooting teams don't draw as many fouls. And also, the Warriors were the eighth worst in terms of putting teams on the free throw line throughout the season. The Lakers have been one of the best in drawing fouls. On the other end, again, a jump shooting team usually doesn't draw fouls much anyway. And the Lakers were actually the best team all season and so far in the playoffs at limiting putting opponents on the free throw line. So, yeah, maybe not 20 plus every game, but they're going to get to the free throw line a lot more. And I would actually say... Even though we know the Lakers, the Warriors are obviously a much better three-point shooting team and jump shooting team from the Lakers, I would say, if anything is less likely to happen, outscoring them by 45 from behind the arc, I would say, is actually less likely to me to happen again than the Lakers getting like 15 to 20 extra free throws. So that's one thing. Two, as I wrote in the piece, I don't want to overreact to one game, but... I am struggling to find out, like, figure out how the Warriors will find an answer for Anthony Davis. Kevon Looney didn't look up to the task, and Looney still had, like, a good game in his own right. You wrote a tremendous feature about Looney and and um, what he brings to the Warriors, the, obviously the great round one series he had. He still had 10, re, uh, 10 points, 20-plus rebounds, and five assists in this game. I don't want to take away from him, like, as if he was a scrub in this game, but... In terms of his work on Anthony Davis, he didn't get it done, and that's more about who Davis is as opposed to who Looney isn't. If Looney can't contain Davis, 
I think there are some tough questions to ask on the Warriors side because it's like if you're not getting the defensive upside of having Looney in there on Davis, can you afford to have two non-shooting bigs on the court from an offensive standpoint? Another question I asked that piece is like, okay, do you maybe shift Draymond onto AD? And then do you think of it as like, look, we can hide Looney on a, uh, a non-offensive threat like Vanderbilt. But even that comes with issues because even though he's like a non-shooting threat, Vanderbilt does a lot of off-ball stuff that you wouldn't typically put a guy like Looney on and like hide him on him because is Looney going to be like chasing him around? Like it doesn't make sense. So I'm struggling to figure out where the Warriors go from here in terms of how they set things up. Like, do they just bring Looney off the bench and go with the pool party lineup that was, you know, pretty solid in that game? No. So then what, what would what would your answer be? You just, do you stash Looney on Vanderbilt? Do you put Draymond on AD, AD? Or do you just say, look, AD got the best of us in game one and that's fine, but we are still very confident in having Kevon Looney guard him. Correct. Uh, okay. I think ultimately you want Draymond on Vanderbilt and they're, they're still going to split those guys up. Like we saw that big run they made at the end of the game. What was it, like a 14 nothing run to come back and tie it late? Came with Draymond at center. You know, Looney didn't close the game. They're still going to do that. But when both those guys on the floor, and I still think Looney has a place in this series, should get a lot of run in this series, maybe, like, probably won't be as impactful as he was against Sacramento just because of the difference in front courts that he's playing against. But you want... Draymond on Vanderbilt because he is your best help defender and your best chance of of mucking things up for the Lakers offense. And yeah, like AD got the best of Looney in that game one, 100%. Let's see if he can do it again. Played 44 minutes in that game one. Like, let's see if he can do it again. Give you that offensively while doing that defensively. So, and at the end of the day, like I don't think the Warriors really lost this game on defense. Like I think they lost it in spite of the 21 threes. They, they shot 14 for 35 in the paint. And that is Anthony Davis's influence and more than figuring out what to do with him at, you know, their own defensive end, they need to figure out how to better attack him at the offensive end. And you mentioned this in your piece, which I thought was a good point. And it sounds counterintuitive But putting him in more action, I think, is ultimately the way to go. Like, sounds counterintuitive because he's this incredible defender. Like, why would you want to involve him in more action? But you got to do whatever you can to pull him away from the rim. And, like, maybe tire him out. Just make him defend action after action after action. And that doesn't necessarily have to be just, like, Steph high pick and roll over and over again. Though I do think they could up the volume there. It can just be as simple as, okay, if if Steph is running a pick and roll on one side of the floor, on the other side of the floor, like whoever AD is guarding, it could be Looney, it could be Draymond, you know, is setting a pin down for Clay Thompson or an exit screen, right? Like I think, you know, one, not that often, but like one or two times in that game, they got those classic Warriors slips to the rim where Looney or Draymond is like setting the exit screen for Clay coming off. And so AD has to step out and those guys are able to slip to the basket for layups, you know, like I'm not saying they did a bad job of it. It's just like, they need to keep hammering that and and making him move as much as possible. Like the one thing that frustrated me 
the Warriors stage this big comeback. They tie the game with this with this 14-0 run. I think the Lakers were then up two at this point. And with a minute left in the game, the Warriors run a guard-guard pick and roll so that Steph can attack D'Angelo Russell. But that's all that happened. He then just like tried to isolate on D'Lo, drove past him, which is great. Like that's why you want to hunt that that matchup. But uh, I can't remember actually if it was Draymond or Looney, but they're just standing in the dunker spot. And so that was like the easiest block that AD got that entire game was just being able to step up and block the shot because he didn't have to guard any off-ball action. That's like that's what they need to focus on, I think, is like if if they're running action away from him, then make him guard something somewhere else on the other side of the floor. At least make him account for it. Because what the Lakers did, and it's reflected obviously in, in the shooting numbers in this game, is like the, the secret sauce of the Warriors offense over the years, obviously we know about the shooting, right? But the secret sauce is the way that they have been able to leverage their shooting threats into the back cuts and the slips and the drives to the rim. And they just, they weren't getting those in this game because they could not elude Anthony Davis in the paint. There's only so much you can do because the thing with AD is because of how quick he is and how long he is, he can just close space in a way that pretty much no other big man can. So like, he can play kind of like a shallow drop against Steph and still get up to contest his shot. He can still, like when he's sagging way off of Draymond or Looney and the Warriors are countering that by going into those dribble handoffs for their movement shooters, you know, to take advantage of the negative spacing, basically. He can still like, he can close that space fast enough. Like he can get up a decent contest even when he's sagging way off those guys. So part of it is just like AD being incredible. And they're not being a whole lot you can do. The, like, I, I just, they, they got to just like find some way, I guess, to to move him. And I, I thought it was interesting like that, that as the Lakers gambit, obviously we know like they're, they're top blocking the warrior shooters. So they're not going to get to all those DHOs and the pin downs and things. And they're kind of funneling them. It's like, Hey, you want to cut back door, be our guest. AD will be there. He'll be waiting for you. Also with pool pool hit six threes in the game, right? They played deep drop against him every single time. Mm-hmm. Did not adjust their coverage at any point, despite all the threes he hit. Like they're willing to live with with a lot of those threes if it means locking down the paint. And I, I'm definitely curious to see how or if the Warriors can counter that. Yeah, the thing with putting AD in screening guys is like it's not even because obviously, yeah, you're not targeting AD because he's a weak defender, as you mentioned. He's you know an all world defender who just devours space on the defensive end, like few other bigs can, maybe any other bigs can. But get him moving tire him out, get him away from the rim. Like there are benefits to that, as you said. And I know like the, the argument against that is like, and I, again, I wrote this in the piece. It's like, it goes against the, the ethos of the Warriors free flowing, unpredictable, like unscripted offense. I get that. But sometimes it's okay to have more traditional elements, like a straight up one five pick and roll, one four pick and roll with Steph and Draymond, Steph and Looney, where he dribbles into it. Because obviously the Warriors use a ton of screens, but it's a lot more off like dribble handoffs and off ball stuff and pin downs to get shooters free. You don't see Steph really like dribbling into a traditional high pick and roll that often. And the one time, literally I went back and watched all of his shots, the one time that Steph dribbled in to a one five pick and roll with Looney, who was being guarded by Davis, who was playing, I would say, 
obviously not a deep drop because Steph had the ball in his hands, but a high drop. It was still some form of drop because it was a loony that he was guarding. Steph stepped into a pretty open 26-footer. Now, in most cases, you say, okay, but they, it was still a 26-footer, but it's Steph. So an open 26-footer for Steph is still a good shot for him. The one time they did it, he got an open shot. And you can say, okay, but that wouldn't happen again because then if they just kept doing it, AD would adjust. He would probably be a little closer to the level of the screen. He would have his hand up, devour that space. Steph wouldn't get a clean look. But then you're admitting, well, yeah, then you're pulling AD further from the basket. So maybe he takes away that look, but something else is being opened up. I just think, I get that it is not what the Warriors do, but I think in this matchup and with AD in particular, it is something they should explore a little more at least and just see what kind of fruit it bears because I think there's something to be had there. Just a couple of counters to that as like a, you know, a, a cure-all. The Warriors did like I don't think they necessarily did it enough, but they did like they ran a decent amount of Steph pick and roll, and a lot of them just wound up with him kind of boxed in between the three point line and the rim with like Vanderbilt on his hip and AD in front of him, expertly playing between you know the ball and the roller, and I think you know Vanderbilt and Schroeder as well deserve a ton of credit for the work they did chasing yeah. Steph over those screens. Like, it's not just you run pick and roll and Steph gets to walk into, you know, a pull-up 26-footer. It's like, he has to deal with that pressure from behind. And and Vanderbilt, I'm just, like, I'm really impressed with him. Like, at his size, to be able to navigate screens that way, like, that's kind of been the the key, I think, to defending Steph in the past, where, like, you have somebody with length who is also an excellent screen navigator, that's what made, you know, Danny Green at his peak kind of an effective, you know, obviously you're grading on a curve when it comes to defending Steph, but like relatively speaking, an effective Steph defender, Mikhail Bridges, guys like that who are super long, but can still stay attached. And I thought Vanderbilt did a hell of a job of that. He got one like rear view block on a Steph floater and, and Schroeder too, man. Schroeder was, was really great chasing him over those screens all night. And the other part of that is the Lakers actually have secondary rim protection. I think this is like a, a really crucial kind of under-discussed element of their defense. Like when AD is stepping out, they've got LeBron back there, man. Yeah. And I think for as much as LeBron hasn't really looked like LeBron this postseason, he showed in that game one, he can still wreak havoc as a secondary rim protector. And so like AD can feel relatively comfortable stepping out and knowing that somebody is going to have his back. And, you know, even Vanderbilt, like he's mostly playing on the perimeter, but if he's near the basket, he can be that secondary rim protector as well. So having that, I think, is a super important aspect of them being able to to defend the things that the Warriors like to do to leverage their shooting into shots at the rim. Game two is tonight, by the way, depending on when you listen to them. Maybe if you listen to this a day late on Friday, game two will have already been played. But I am interested to see if the Lakers go to Vanderbilt more in this series because of how great of a defensive matchup he is. For Steph, obviously you're you're not stopping Steph, but few guys have navigated those screens this season the way I th- I saw Vanderbilt do it in Game One, and just the like the tireless work he put in man marking him to use like more of a soccer term, but he he was like man marking him, face guarding him without like off the ball from the second the Warriors inbounded it on some possessions, and then he's chasing him around screens and he's doing like. Tremendous work defensively, and that run you talked about that the war the first time the Warriors really kind of broke loose, and Curry hit a couple shots. Pool that was in a four minute stretch, all of it with Vanderbilt on the bench in the late stages of fourth quarter because 
the Lakers often go away from Vanderbilt late in games because they don't want the offensive limitations that come with it, right? And the and defense is helping off him. That's like their MO. Vanderbilt starts, but he doesn't play top five minutes. Seventh during the regular season. And in the playoffs, he's been eighth in minute, eighth and fourth quarter minutes. I do think offensive limitations being what they are, especially if he can do what he did, like game one, crashing the offensive glass, doing some of the stuff he was doing off ball. I think his defensive value in this matchup in particular is worth more than some of the offensive shortcomings can take away. And so I would like to see the Lakers use him a bit more. Like even down, I don't think they have to be so quick to yank him being like, okay, this is our pattern getting late fourth quarter. We got to pull Vanderbilt now because it's an offensive line. But like, I think you can kind of let it ride a little bit and see how it's developing before they just automatically yank him from like a substitution pattern standpoint. Yeah, I hear that. Um, can I ask you a an unrelated question? So offensively, where are you at in terms of, you know, LeBron still not looking quite right and that being concerning versus LeBron not having to be especially good offensively for the Lakers to win and that being really encouraging? Where are you at on that? I'd say a little column A, a little column B, and here's why. LeBron not being, you know, quite LeBron anymore on the offensive end, I would say is the reason is the reason they probably can't win the title. Uh-huh. And that's that's maybe strong because I've been the one saying, like, since the deadline, this team gives LeBron a chance to win again. Can't is a strong word. I don't not zero percent, but I would say LeBron not quite being LeBron anymore is the reason I, you know, there are a lot of a few teams still left in these playoffs where I would definitely pick over the Lakers. But the flip side to that and the encouraging side of the fact, and we talked about it, I think, even in, in the last round, like when Austin Reeves closed out game one, and obviously you see what AD is doing and all this. The benefit of all that is that it's allowed the Lakers to get where they already are, despite LeBron not being LeBron anymore. So it's at least given them a puncher's chance, right? It's put them in a position where they're in the second round. They've got a series lead. I, In my opinion, they have a very good chance to... I would pick them to beat the Warriors and get to the conference finals. And then as, as you noted, you know, last week when we were talking about the Knicks, like if you get to the conference finals, you could be the fourth best team of the four remaining. You are one of four teams remaining. You are an injury, a bounce, whatever away from being in the finals. And at that point, all bets are off. So I think the fact that the Lakers are what they are now and have this kind of team around LeBron, the benefit of it is that they put themselves in a position to be here and have a shot despite the limitations of 38-year-old LeBron. But him not being him, you know, I'm not automatically picking them because they have LeBron anymore. It just doesn't work like that anymore. Yeah, I think him just not really being able to find his way to high-value shots is what's really worrying to me. Like, so much settling for jumpers. Like, just not really... Even, like, trying to run inverted pick-and-roll and stuff. Like, all the stuff that's worked so well for him in the past just isn't producing those kinds of uh, high value outcomes. Like he's, he's still just not, I don't know. He's, he's not like getting to pay dirt by sheer force of will in the way that we've seen him do in the past. So maybe again, that's him recognizing that he has other guys who can kind of help carry the load offensively. He's saving up. I thought he had a great defensive game in game one. So if that's the tactic and maybe he's like saving energy for in case, you know, it's crunch time and needs to really rev up. He wants to have a little bit left in the tank. Maybe that's it. And in that case, we'll see the real benefits of him having a roster around him that can kind of shoulder some more of that offensive load. But 
right now, I'm definitely a little bit concerned in the big picture about just the extent to which he's settling and not not like getting great shots for himself. All right, you want to take a break, come back and talk about the other two series? Yes, please. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, we still have to talk Nuggets, Suns, and Knicks Heat. Where do you want to start here? Uh, let's do Nuggets, Suns. That's a little bit more interesting to me right now. All right, well, as Mrs. Potts once said in Beauty and the Beast, tale as old as time, Chris Paul is hurt in the playoffs. <laughs> I was and, wondering I mean, we're, where you're going to go with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, Peebo Bryson also said it, but Miss Potts in the movie. Chris Paul, out at least a week with a groin injury, suffered in a Game 2 loss. So the Suns have to win two of the next three, essentially. At least two of the next three to force a Game 6, which isn't impossible. The next two are in Phoenix. But to get Chris Paul back, that's what they'd have to do. If you're talking about Chris Paul's list of playoff injuries, 2015 West Semifinals hamstring injury forced him to miss a couple games. 2016, first round against Portland, broke his hand. 2018, obviously the most devastating of them all to me. He hurt his hamstring with uh, the Rockets closing out game five there. The the number one overall seed Rockets with prime Harden go up 3-2 on the KD-led Warriors and then lose game six and seven without CP. That was the most devastating one. 2021, the year that the Suns actually got to the finals, if you remember, he hurt his like shoulder and hand, I think, in the first round against the Lakers. And that did limit him at points throughout that run to the finals. So uh, yeah, now the newest one, groin injury, 2023, with the Suns now down 2-0 to the Nuggets, but the series going back to Phoenix. Jamal Murray was great in game one. Jokic was great in game two. I mean, I tweeted this after game two, but I think you can between 2020 and this season, which is the last two times these guys have both been healthy for the playoffs, you can make the argument like this is as good a playoff duo as exists right now, just based on their performance in the postseason. They are tremendous. And here they are up to nothing going to Phoenix. So I'll ask you if with Chris Paul out for the next three games, at least, and the sun's already down to nothing, how much of a chance do you give them to get back in and or win this series. Some people might laugh at that question in general because the obvious answer is they've got Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. They are not out of a series going back home, but I'm curious to hear your answer. At the risk of counting out an all-time great in Kevin Durant, who for much of this season when he has been healthy has still played at an MVP caliber level. And, you know, counting out Devin Booker, who has been, you know, one of the five best players in this postseason so far. Just majestic as an on-ball creator. Man, I don't I don't give them a particularly good chance I'm with of pulling this comeback off without Chris Paul because like this is a a very thin team as it is. And so losing one of their three best players just Hurts a ton. And I just haven't seen very much in these first couple of games to make me feel like they can sustain a loss like that and come back and win. Like, 
the last time we talked about them, they were in the middle of an unexpectedly competitive series against a skeleton Clippers crew. And I mentioned how I felt like kind of low key, they had a similar conundrum to the Cavs in that they just didn't really have a clear fifth guy. Didn't know who that was going to be. Everyone that they conceivably could have plugged into that spot would, you know, take something off of the table. Torrey Craig answered that to an extent by hitting 10 threes in that first round series, but we knew he wasn't going to sustain that. They didn't even keep him in the starting lineup for the series. They went back to Josh Okoji. But the point is, now they need to figure out a fourth and a fifth guy. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, that's a lot to overcome. Like Booker and KD are already playing like 43 minutes a game. I don't know how much more they can give you. You know, they've the, what, do, what do the Suns have? A 102 offensive rating, I think, in this series so far. I kind of think that's been a combination of poor offensive process from them and really good defense from the Nuggets. But I'll say, like, one of the things that I was going to spotlight if we'd gotten around to doing a second round preview was who on the Nuggets was going to guard the non-threat or non-threats on the Suns, you know, whether that meant Craig or Koji or Wainwright, whoever I thought, okay, well, could Aaron Gordon be that guy? He's probably their best help defender, but they also sort of need him to guard KD. Maybe it would be MPJ who I think has made like huge strides as a help defender. And that's for the most part, I think been their answer so far. And I think he's done a great job. Like in low man help, he's been on point. Um, But I thought where it got really interesting was down the stretch of that game too where they actually subbed MPJ out and replaced him with Bruce Brown in the closing lineup. Not because MPJ like wasn't getting it done so much as it just, that gave them a different kind of defensive look where they shifted Gordon onto Aiton, had Bruce Brown take the KD assignment, which he freaking blocked a KD jumper down the stretch. Uh, He was great. And then had Jokic guarding a Koji. And now it's like the the Suns, I won't say they don't have the option to attack Jokic in pick and roll, but it is significantly neutralized by the fact that Okoji, like I was saying with PJ Tucker, just not really a threat on the roll. And they actually got like a bucket out of that. They put Jokic in action. He came up to the level as he's been doing against Booker and KD the entire series. Akoji catches on the short roll, four on three, lay down pass to Aiton in the dunker spot, and they get a bucket. But the next time they ran it, he like completely record scratched with Gordon, like essentially like not coming up to help as aggressively from the dunker. And suddenly Akoji like, oh, 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 what should I do? And ends up like passing it back out. The possession goes nowhere. And after the timeout, he was out of the game. The, the Suns are just running into these issues where they're they're like running out of bodies, man. Like they don't mm-hmm. have the horses, I don't think, to really fill out their lineups, especially without Chris Paul. And it's just going to be up to KD and Booker to do absolutely everything. And I think that they can do that in a way that wins them a game or two. But to win the series, I'm very skeptical. Uh, and then, you know, we can talk about the shot profile stuff, which I think has been a huge story. Really, it's like, so, so we laid out when, when they made this big trade, all of the potential pitfalls that we saw, like things that could undo this team. And I think I thought like, you know, at some point 
one or two of these things is probably going to bite them. They might still win the title because everybody else in the league has like a pretty glaring flaw, but these are the concerns. And it's like every single one of them is coming home to roost right now, right? Like the lack of depth, check. The Chris Paul injury risk, check. Defensive rebounding struggles, check. Alarming shot profile, check. Like every single one of them. Um, so I thought it was funny in game two because like in game one, they only got up 16 threes before garbage time. And they also lost a possession battle very badly. So they got smoked in just like the math game. Mm-hmm. They come out with a clear plan in game two to get more threes up. They shot 31 of them. Good for them. And they hit six. Yeah. Whoops. But it's sort of spotlighted for me. Like, yeah, it would have helped if they could have made more of those threes. <laughs> I still think the bigger issue for them is that they can't get to the rim. And especially like, I think that's really the way in which they're letting this Nuggets defense off the hook. Cause that's where Denver's defense struggles the most is protecting the rim. And yet the, the Suns have a 19% rim frequency in the series so far. So for the season where a league worst 25.9% rim frequency team, which even when you compare it to say, the Warriors of last year, right? Who you can say, well, look, a jump shooting team just won the title. The Warriors were still over 30% rim frequency. And oh, and by the way, that's with their insane home scorekeeping when it comes to shot location. There you go. Which I know we had a discussion off air about this. I We need a deep dive into the shenanigans going on in the Warriors tracking data uh, at home. But yeah, the Warriors, even the jump shot happy Warriors still had a... 30% plus rim frequency last season, and then obviously have the benefit of the fact that a lot of those jump shots come from behind the arc where there is the benefit of an additional point. The Suns get to the rim less often than any other team in the league, less often than most teams in the last few years, to be honest, and don't shoot enough threes. And it's just a math issue that is hard to overcome in 2023, even when you have you know mid-range jump shooters as good as Kevin Durant, Devin Booker and Chris Paul and then to your point about the fact that they also haven't cleaned the defensive glass so now they're really losing the math battle because they're also giving up extra shooting possessions to the Nuggets this was something again if we had done like a, a, a second round preview one of my questions was going to be can the Suns keep the Nuggets off the offensive glass because we know like the Nuggets punished a too big lineup in Minnesota in the first round and still just demolished the offensive glass and the Suns were one of the worst defensive rebounding teams all season. Pre-KD, post-KD didn't matter. It actually got worse post-KD trade. So far in the series, the Nuggets have rebounded 32.6% of their own misses. Almost a third of their own misses are just ending up in second shots on the possession. So a lot of reasons to believe that the Nuggets should win this series, let alone the fact that they are already up 2-0 and now Chris Paul's out. Yeah, and the Suns' offense, like even with... The, the lack of depth and with the CP injury, I just feel like it should be able to do more. And I'm, I don't know, man, it's weird because what, what happened to all of the like multi-screen actions that they used to run? Like, I can't recall seeing them run a single Spain pick and roll in that game too, where it's like, okay, like whether, you know, Chris Paul's there or not, like they could run that action with like Booker on ball and Aiden coming to set the initial screen and then KD setting the back screen and jetting out to the three-point line. Like, I feel like so much of that stuff has fallen by the wayside. Like, that that intricate stuff going on around, like, the central pick and roll that made the Suns' offense so effective, even with a kind of old-school shot profile the last couple of years. 
I don't know. It's just there's a lot of stagnancy there that gives me some concern. And there are reasons for this, but they just don't use Booker and KD in action together very often. I understand that, you know, like wanting to weaponize KD's off-ball gravity, but he's just been, I don't know, he's been hesitant or like too passive off the ball, like not not impacting the offense as much as I would have expected him to. Obviously, just like shooting the ball better would be a big help. He was, what, 10 for 27 in game two. And I do ultimately think like the balance there should tilt toward more on-ball Booker, more off-ball KD. KD is more of an off-ball threat. I think Booker is like a better and more manipulative playmaker. Like we did see a few times his ability to like manipulate the tag. And we know like the the Nuggets are going to put two on the ball against him every time. Uh, There was like one possession where the low man was uh, Christian Brown. And who's in the weak side corner? It's KD. So Brown has to help off of KD in that weak side corner. Because it's like a you know an empty side pick and roll where there's nobody else to help, and he's tagging Aiton. Booker is like getting strung out toward the sideline, but he makes this like incredible pass where he's looking straight at KD in the corner, and Brown had taken like three steps back to the corner before uh, Booker even released the ball, and the pass went right to AD under the basket for a dunk. Like that's the kind of stuff that Booker can do. Where even though it's K- even though KD is taller and can like see over the defense maybe in a way that Booker can't. Booker's just a better passer. And what KD's off-ball gravity can do, I think is more important and more valuable than what Booker's off-ball gravity can do. So I think that's the right balance. But then it's like, do you have enough guys off-ball where you can actually like make the Nuggets sweat? And without Chris Paul there, I'm just not, I'm not sure. Even with Chris Paul there, it didn't seem like they could do it because the Nuggets were kind of fine ignoring him off the ball. Yeah, and I think it's just going to be exasperated now, obviously, with Chris Paul out. Look, they probably get a game at home. I, even with all the things we said, I'd have a hard time seeing them getting swept with both KD and Book. But I don't know, man. The Nuggets look like a well-oiled machine right now and definitely have some clear advantages in this series. Yeah, I do think the Suns are going to get a game at home. But I, if I had to predict what's going to happen, it's like Suns get a game, Nuggets come home 3-1, and they close it out in five. Agreed. But Agreed. Who knows? Uh, you know, we'll see what kind of bump I guess the Suns shooters and you know role players specifically get at home. We know, especially in the playoffs, role players shoot better at home. So we'll see. Uh, one quick question for you before we move on from this series: the the Suns' tactic of basically trying to play Jokic in single coverage yeah. for Turning almost that entire game too. Yeah. I mean, Jokic feasted. Aiton worked his ass off in that matchup, you know, to not much avail. But I think ultimately, I mean, I guess I'll ask you, good plan, bad plan, neutral, irrelevant, because he's going to dice you up either way. What do you think? I would say good plan that is rendered irrelevant because of how good Nikola Jokic is. I understand the logic. I would say in in theory, it is a good plan. You you turn a guy that's not just the best passing big man, but one of the best playmakers in general and, you know, offensive playmaking hubs in the league try to turn him into a scorer or more of a... It's not even so much about turning him into a scorer as just trying to, like, turn off the playmaking power a little bit. You can look at it and say, Nikola Jokic, who's, you know, a 10 assist a game guy, is averaging five assists in this series. He's had 10 assists total in two games. So from that perspective, the thinking has been right. The problem is, you know, he actually didn't have a great individual offensive game one, but through two games now, he's averaging about 32 points on like 
50 whatever percent shooting, he's going to get his. And the problem is, it's like you compare it to, say, for example, what the Warriors did to Sabonis, right? Who is a big playmaking hub, and, and they wanted to turn him into more of a shooter and score. And whatever. One, they're just not wired the same offensively. They don't have the same skills offensively. Sabonis is a tremendously skilled offensive player, but is not just not as skilled and as equipped to attack that the way Jokic is, and frankly, isn't as willing. Like, the problem with Jokic is he's at a point in his career now where he's willing to attack that if that's what he has to do. He's capable of doing it in a variety of ways. And to your point, you know, I didn't think this was for a lack of trying on DeAndre Ayton's part. I thought he worked his ass off. Nikola Jokic is just that good. So long way of answering your question to say, good plan, I get it, just irrelevant because <laughs> Jokic is going to get his. And yeah, you could say, well, we're going to make him beat us as a scorer. Guess what? He can beat you as a scorer. Yeah, I would say not totally irrelevant because I do think that tactic had a lot to do with Jamal Murray and MPJ struggling mm-hmm. in that game too. Like those guys really thrive off of the movement and like advantages created by Jokic when he's able to draw multiple guys to the ball. So I don't think it was a total coincidence that both those guys really struggled offensively. And the Nuggets, despite this huge Jokic performance, what do you finish with? 39 on like 17 for 30 shooting. They only scored 97 points, you know, like it, I wouldn't say on a team level, the tactic failed. Like the Suns lost that game because their offense was in the toilet. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't hate it. And it's pretty similar actually to what the Blazers tried to do to Jokic with uh, Nurkic as his primary a couple of years ago. I think just giving him the same look over and over again is probably a mistake. Like mixing things up a little bit more is really your only hope. And it doesn't matter because I, well, okay. I, I kind of started out this saying by saying that like it's not irrelevant. So it does matter to an extent, but Jokic is just like a genius to the point that like he'll dissect any coverage you throw at him. But I still think you got to make him think a little bit and make him Agreed. just be unpredictable so that he doesn't entirely know what's coming. You want to talk Nick's heat before we get out of here? Yeah, man. The heat. They can't keep getting away with this, Cash. <laughs> Dude. No Jimmy Butler. Well, okay, look, they lost. game. It's it's an even series. But the most heat thing was like, no Jimmy Butler. Obviously, still no Tyler Hero. They lost Oladipo. Then Struess leaves the game temporarily. And you're thinking like, they just can't sustain all these absences. And then while he's out, he ends up coming back. While he's out, like Gabe Vincent and Caleb Martin go nuts and keep the heat in it. Again, Knicks end up really coming on strong down the stretch. They also have Randall back in this game. They even the series. But... If you're Miami, unless they know something we don't about Jimmy Butler's ankle, which I don't think is the case, it seems like he's going to play in game three, you're coming home with the guy who's been the best player in these playoffs in a best of five with home court advantage. They got to be feeling really good about themselves. There's a couple things I guess we could talk about. I mean, I wanted to get your thoughts on Emmanuel Quickly, whose season I know you love, we both did. You had him as your sixth man, I believe. I had him as my runner-up. Kind of falling out of the rotation as he's really struggling on the offensive end in these playoffs. So I wanted your thoughts on that. And if you see a path or what you think his path back is, unless it's just like, he's got to score a little bit more. One of the notes I made was that I thought the Knicks were just giving the heat shooters way too much space and kind of freedom to let it fly. Let me quickly say something to, to that effect, because like the formula that won them that series against Milwaukee hasn't really been what got them the split in New York and nearly helped them take both games and MSG like Butler was good, but not great by his standards in game one. And then 
sprained his ankle with five minutes left and was like a complete non-factor from that point on. Didn't play in game two, obviously. And then the shooting, we mentioned, you know, how they shot 45% from deep against Milwaukee and had like one of the best series ever as a pull-up jump shooting team. They're only at 34% from deep through these two games against New York, which is like almost exactly in line with what they did in the regular season when they ranked 27th in the league. So the like Jimmy Butler goes supernova and the role players nail all their threes hasn't really been the formula here. Um, and I, so I think that's interesting. Like I, I just can't get over, I cannot get over the fact that this team that three weeks ago was in a dog fight with the 10th seeded Chicago Bulls, three minutes away from a trip to the lottery and becoming the first seven seed ever to miss the playoffs by losing two straight home play in games. All of a sudden they like, they can't be stopped. And I know they were stopped in a sense because they lost that game too, but that was, I think the most impressive loss that I've seen all season. When you consider the circumstances and the stakes to look at the roster, they threw out for game two in the second round in a second round playoff game. And they nearly won it, man. Okay. So they're without their best player like their best shot creator, obviously, and their best perimeter defender. They're without their second best shot creator. They're without a third rotation player who's been a pretty important part of their defense. On the road, in Madison Square Garden, they gave 65 combined minutes to Kevin Love, Cody Zeller, Haywood Highsmith, and Duncan Robinson. So that is two buyout signees. A guy on you know a converted 10-day contract, basically, who came into this season on a non-guaranteed deal. And a guy who was out of the rotation until a couple weeks ago and didn't even play in those play-in games. Like, and they led for like more than 30 minutes of the game, including basically the entire second half until they finally ran out of steam in like the last four or five minutes and, and lost by six. To, I won't say a fully healthy Knicks team, just because I know like Randall's coming back from the ankle sprain and, and Jalen Brunson's also dealing with an ankle thing. So I guess not fully healthy, but like they had their full complement of players. And the Heat almost pulled that one out. Like, I just, I can't get over it. Um, and they, they kind of had to get a bit gimmicky in that game too. Like you mentioned, they hoisted 49 threes. They played what felt like the entire game in a zone on defense. And ultimately, I think the Knicks solved that zone. Like we, we saw the waning effectiveness of that as the game went on. And the Knicks were kind of able to put it away down the stretch. But they're just so resourceful. Like, endlessly resourceful man huge credit to their entire rotation and definitely to Eric Spolstra and his staff uh they just they just find a way um the one thing I do want to talk about a little bit is their defensive game plan on Brunson and like specifically in game one because they had Butler in that game and Butler you know between him and and uh Caleb Martin those were the primaries on him uh in game two it wasn't really the same because you know without Butler they did revert to that zone so it was a little bit different but uh, I, th- I thought it was interesting how they chose to guard him because they aren't showing him the same kind of help at the point of attack that the Cavs did. Like, when even when he's running guard-guard screens to try and, like, attack the weaker Heat defenders, those guards are basically playing him in a drop. They're not making him see the body as, like, at the point of the screen— they're making him see the bodies at like the second level of defense. 
where they're really pinching in from the wings and the corners. And so they're like showing him the help after he's like started to drive when he's trying to get into like his spinny pivoty mid range game. That's when like they're showing him this kind of unpredictable help and like really showing no respect to the Knicks shooters like Hart, Barrett, Randall, Toppin, Grimes, like whatever. They're willing to kind of let those guys have all they can eat if it means gumming up what Jalen Brunson can do in the middle of the floor. Um, and I thought that, you know, the Knicks counter to that after he went 0 for 7 from 3 in game 1 was to just like move him off the ball a little bit more, especially against that zone. I think that helped him get going in game 2. Uh, but I'm curious to see like how much of that when Butler's back, how much of that defensive game plan carries over and how effective it can be moving forward. Interesting to see for sure. One more Knicks point, but you know what? I think I'm going to save it. And it's because I, I might save it for when their season is over. Um, okay. Come on, man. Don't, don't no, tease just me about, like this. I just don't want to go too deep. Cause we're already almost like what? 75 minutes. in. I don't want to go too deep on it. I've already talked about it before about how I just think going for, they're going to have to split up Randall and Barrett. All right, real quick, you want me to just give, throw some numbers out there? But I just, I, like I said, I just don't think we have the time to get into it too much. Okay. Regular season, Julius Randle on, RJ Barrett off, plus 11.9 per 100 possessions. In the playoffs, <laughs> plus 24.5, obviously insanely small sample size. Regular season, Barrett on, Randle off, plus 1.5, exact same in the playoffs, plus 1.5. Both of them on in the regular season, minus 2.3, plus 0. 0.8 in the playoffs. Again, there's a lot to unpack in there, and I think we can get into this when they are eliminated, whether it's this round or sometime later, but something I just continue to keep my eye on because whether it's from like an offensive functionality standpoint, there are just reasons I don't think, and it's not even necessarily like to hate on either one of them. It's just sometimes players don't fit, and even though they have their individual attributes that can help a team, doesn't always mean that they should be on the court together or be on the same team together. So anyway, again, I, I don't want to get too deep into it now because they still have a serious play. They may well win it, even though I don't think they will. And we'll see what happens. But I think something to keep in mind that we can maybe talk about at a later date yeah, when they are eliminated. Just a quick addendum to that. I thought it was really interesting because, you know, Barrett's been good in these first couple of games. Yes. You know, he's yep. mostly had Gabe Vincent matched up on him. I think he's done a pretty good job exploiting that matchup. You know, what did he finish with in game two? I think 24 points, and he hit a bunch of threes too. And the Knicks still closed with Grimes over him. So, you know, to your point, I think even when he's breaking out, you know, having a really good game by his standards, there are certain fit issues there that, you know, make it so that they're sometimes better off closing with somebody else. All right, we uh, did we say we're not going to do make or miss again today just because we've gone too long? Yeah, I don't know. Make, make or miss might just not be conducive to these playoff pods where we're like diving so deep into the nitty gritty of these matchups. Like, I think as the playoffs continue to go on, like maybe by the conference finals when we've got two series we're talking about, we can maybe yeah. kill some time with make or miss. But because we've neglected fan shoutouts for a while, I do want to get to a couple of those. Okay. So the first one is going to go out to Donish Basil at Donish with two A's. Basil or Basil, who actually uh, tweeted at us immediately after the Raptors were eliminated a few weeks ago from the play-in. But again, this tells you how long it's been since we've done a proper fan shout-out. And he included us in a tweet about the great Raptors coverage this year. So I just wanted to shout out Danish because while we aren't Raptors reporters or 
um, you know, Raptors beat people. We cover the entire league. We do appreciate that you included us in that tweet and hope Pound the Rock continues to be part of your rotation now that the Raptors are out. And then uh, a couple more at D Raptors, Raptors with two S's, goes by Raptors season on Twitter, who we've actually shouted out before for listening to the show. But he reached out to me. We were talking about something. And through that, realized he very recently just got married. So we special shout out to at D Raptors and the misses for their recent wedding. And then the last one is not like an official shout, fan shout out, but I wanted to throw it out there because in, I don't remember now if it was on the piece I wrote about the Clippers or in one of our podcast um, episodes that goes up onto the app. But one of the comments was from someone who goes by <laughs> Woozy Juan Kenobi, who comment was strictly the LA Tin Men. And that to me indicates that Woozy Juan Kenobi is a Pound the Rock listener, if you remember the original PG Tin Man shenanigans from a few years ago. So reach out officially, Woozy, so you can get a proper shout out. But anyway, those are uh, two or three that I wanted to get through because we haven't done one in a while. Have another one or two banked here, but I still do want to encourage everyone to reach out if you're a listener of Pound the Rock and get the shout out you so richly deserve for allowing us to do what we do. Reach out on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfon at score.com, joseph.cacharo at score.com. Find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash and let us know where you listen from, how long you've been listening, what you like or don't like about the show, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. But until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock. Thank you